Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Graham Rustin. Graham is a 24-7, 365 hockey guy and also an entrepreneur who has succeeded by combining his passion with his business ventures. Today, we're going to talk the hockey news and hockey sticks. Graham is the owner and publisher of The Hockey News, the sports bible, which has covered the NHL and everything hockey since 1947. And he also owns some of the most iconic hockey stick and equipment brands, running what is considered hockey's oldest business at 175 years and counting. Graham has demonstrated a lifelong commitment to growing the game of men's and women's hockey around the world. And in the past, he's been linked to various NHL franchise ownership opportunities. Does he still have interest? Please stay tuned. Welcome, Graham, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm at the Toronto offices or studio of the Hockey News. That's where I'm at today, and I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to have you on. I understand you are a dual citizen of both the United States and Canada. Where do you live or spend most of your time these days? On an airplane, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm most familiar. Uh, when you walk on the on the jet bridge and the captain greets you by your first name, that's a bad sign. Oh, boy. You are a uh, frequent mileage kind of guy. I've been flying quite a bit. I'm actually a pilot as well, but I've been flying uh, my uh, commercial for quite a long time, my entire career. And um, I actually commute between Florida and Toronto on a weekly basis. But you're not a snowbird. Well, snowbirds, like I think they go down once and like they go down, what, in November and come back in March? I think that's what a snowbird is. Well, I go down every week in March and come back every week in November, but I'm on, was always on a plane. Okay. Well, busy guy. Let's go back all the way, if you don't mind, Graham. Get the Graham Rooston story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Well, I was born uh, in a beautiful small town uh, called Sherbrooke, Quebec. It is uh, picturesque. It's a beautiful place to come from. I'm very proud of being from Sherbrooke. Very few people. Um, I, I bump into a few people here and there, but it's just wonderful to be able to say that you were born in Sherbrooke. Um, but I grew up in Montreal uh, and then basically uh, went uh, to school there and then went really down to the States in, uh, in the late 80s uh, to uh, pursue my financial career. Well, let's not gloss over the details. You grew up in the NDG area of Montreal, playing hockey from a very young age. And then I believe Concordia was where you did your schooling? Yeah, I, pl I went to Marymount High School. I did gloss over that. Um, had a great time at Marymount. A great people, large school, 2,000 uh, students in the school. And uh, I still have my best friend from uh, high school, Scott Pearson, is still <laughs> my close friend from grade 8. Actually, we met in grade seven, excuse me, in 1972. And, of course, Kathleen Casey, who was another friend during high school, were still friends. So, you know, a lot of the friendships that I had in Montreal at Marymount in uh, NDG, Cote St. Luke area, uh, just went on to, of course, Concordia University. It is a great place. Montreal is, I don't know if you've been there, but Montreal is just a gorgeous, gorgeous city. And really, it should be on everybody's bucket list to go to and spend some time there. Well, not only uh, have I been there, but... My wife, Graham, is uh, South Shore, Greenfield Park. She has been in Toronto for many more years now than her upbringing in Montreal, but she still insists on cheering for the wrong hockey team. Who do you cheer for these days? 
Well, growing up, my favorite player was Serge Savard and uh, the Montreal Canadiens for sure. I used to work at a little little tiny uh, restaurant on um, Peel and St. Catherine. And on Saturdays, I used to wash dishes. This is 1972. I was 12 years old. And so I would wash dishes at this um, Burke's Luncheonette restaurant on the corner of Peel and St. Catherine. And then at about 8 o'clock, I was, my shift would end, but I would run down to uh, St. Catherine and Atwater and sneak in the back door of the old Montreal form. And I'd actually bring food, a sandwich and some leftover soup from the day at my little place. And I would bribe the guard to let me in the back door. And so I'd go up to SRO, standing room only, and try to squeeze in between some people there and watch part of a game. So those are the good old days in 1972 when you could squeeze in and get into an arena with just a sandwich and a bowl of soup. (laughs) Those were the good old days. They definitely were. Uh, Graham, as you note, in the late 80s, you joined uh, Merrill Lynch's stockbroker training program, began your financial industry career. A connection to former NHL executive Brian O'Neill led you to head west to California to attempt to secure an NHL franchise for San Jose. Please share that story. Well, that's a, you know, it's, when I was in Concordia University, we had a, uh, it was a finance class and it was entrepreneurship. And I thought I would be a smart guy. And I, instead of coming up with a business plan, uh, which was what you're supposed to do during the curriculum, during the course, I decided to open up my own business. And, you know, what I did was open up an ice cream parlor, ice cream shop in Montreal, which, you know, might not make sense to a lot of people because it's only warm four or five months of the year. True. But, um, I did it. And um, one of the one of the people that worked for me, one of the students from a high school was Sandy O'Neill. And uh, she was the daughter of uh, Brian O'Neill, who was an executive with the NHL at the time. And uh, he used to come and pick her up after her shift. And we used to talk and I got to know him, uh, you know, uh, very casually, but very, very nice man picking up his daughter, Sandy. And yeah, I won a visa to go to the United States in, uh, in a lottery program in uh, 1988. Uh, I had asked him about future opportunities in the States, and he said to me that uh, the NHL was was looking to move, uh, get a team back in the Bay Area. So I bought a one-way ticket and headed to San Jose, California. Were you part of what eventually became the San Jose Sharks, or were you kind of way ahead of the curve? Well, I wish. But um, when I got out there, I got a job at Merrill Lynch and uh, put a group together to bid on the franchise. But there were several other people, several other groups uh, one of them was Howard Baldwin. Uh, he became famous for actually uh, winning the process. But you know, back in the back in those days, I met uh, George Gund, who was the owner of the at the time Minnesota uh, Wild, Minnesota <laughs> North Stars, North Stars. Yeah, yeah, remember that Minnesota North Stars. And George Gund came out, and uh, his brother, they his brother lived in San Francisco, but George came out, and we met, and he's the NHL wanted the San Jose Sharks to go to the Gun Brothers. And so there was sort of a deal there, and uh, but I got to meet George Gunn and spent some time with him, and uh, what a what a tremendous man he was. And I met Art Savage, who was the first CEO of the San Jose Sharks, and I was at the first game ever at the Cow Palace. I was invited oh, wow. by them. You know, they invited me to come to the game, and so I developed a relationship with uh, Art Savage and George Gunn. And um, while I was working at Merrill Lynch in San Jose, California, and uh, that was my first sort of. Uh, entree into uh, the National Hockey League pursuing franchises. Well, we're going to get more to that because, as you know, there is a franchise available for sale right now. In fact, why don't we jump out of order and talk about that? The Ottawa Senators are for sale. Graham, are you uh, any interest, any involvement, and 
any comments on other attempts that you've been involved with to get NHL franchises? Well, if I were involved in the Ottawa Senator franchise pursuit, I wouldn't be allowed to talk about it. So that's all I can say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, any other attempts in the past? Because I think, and maybe you have a comment on uh, Jim Balsillie kind of made that very public uh, attempt to have a team go to Hamilton and it didn't end up working. And I've never heard from him since on this topic. Uh, any comments on him or any comments on any other past attempts that you've been involved with? Well, I, I could tell you that I, I had the good fortune of meeting Jim Balsillie. Uh, we played together in a, in a Festival Cup All-Star game uh, at the Old Air Canada Centre in September of 2008, I want to say it was. And we played on the same team, and it was during the TIFF. It was the, the TIFF Festival. For those of you who don't know the TIFF, it's Toronto International Film Festival. And um, I played on the same team with him. And I got to meet him and got to, you know, become friendly with him. And, uh, you know, he's uh, obviously, he was a very dynamic leader in the uh, iTech business. He's a very strong personality guy, very smart, super smart. I mean, this guy is like brilliant. But, you know, my my, uh, my efforts in 2009, shortly after meeting Jim, the Montreal Canadiens became uh, up for sale. And uh, I was uh, invited to uh, get into that process, and I did, and we went quite far. I had a, a substantial partner with me in that, and uh, we we got right till the end. But at the end of the day, the league wanted it to uh, go to uh, Jeff Molson's group, and so that's the way it works. And you know, Jim Jim Balsilli has his way of uh, approaching things. My way has always been: I like to be invited to a party, mm -hmm. and I like to get along. Uh, with the process. And, uh, I know sometimes it's not my turn. Sometimes it is my turn, but you know, where I grew up and coming from where I come from, just the fact that I was at the table and yeah. then I was a finalist, you know, my group was a finalist to be the owner of the Montreal Canadians. Having grown up in NDG, you know, a single mom, four kids kind of a story, just being there and being at the, the table, uh, and as a finalist was, um, overwhelming. Uh, for me and my family. Very exciting. It must have been close to your heart. Let's talk about one project that you did get to the finish line. Let's talk about Bauer. For over 90 years, a truly iconic skate and equipment brand, none other than the Nike Corporation, yes, the Just Do It Nike of Air Jordan fame, had spent a decade trying to build a hockey portfolio specifically around the Bauer brand that was not to be. And in 2008, Hugh Graham purchased Bauer from Nike for $200 million, which is apparently half of what Nike originally paid to acquire Bauer in the first place. Please share your story of acquiring Bauer. Well, it's another situation where I was invited to, a, the, invited to the party to participate in the process. And I was very fortunate to be able to be at the right place at the right time. There was a lot of people, a lot of groups that were circling around Bauer in 2007 when it went up on the, the block for sale. I had relied on my relationships that had gone way back uh, to 1988, 89, when I first went down to California. Uh, I had the good fortune of meeting uh, with uh, the top people at um, Nike years before. They knew me, I knew them, and I'd had a relationship with them. So when I got into the process, uh, it was 
clear to me that uh, Bauer was going to be sold to my group. And um, luckily for me, uh, it was. And it was a, a tremendous situation for me personally because, as you know, when you grow up in Canada and you're a young hockey player, boy or girl, you're either a Bauer kid or a CCM kid. You're yeah. one or the other. And growing up, I was a Bauer kid. And uh, here I was. It was an amazing opportunity, amazing time for me to be able to uh, sign the paperwork and become the chairman of the board of Bauer, uh, which took place in uh, 2008. And it was a, it was a just an exciting time, a big brand. Uh, my phone blew up. You can't imagine the phone calls I got. I, I'll tell you one off story. I was uh, at the World Championships in Quebec City. And I was just sitting at a table by my, you know, off in the corner <laughs> by myself in a way. And all of a sudden, this big gentleman came up, tapped me on the shoulder. And he says to me, he says, are you uh, Graham Rooston? I said, uh, yeah. And I thought I was going to get kicked out of the place. You know, I thought, like, I've been kicked out of a lot of places, so I'm used to that. And then the guy says, would you follow me? And I and I was, like, in mid-cutting of my whatever I was eating. And he says, would you, would you, would you follow me? And I thought, I'm seriously getting kicked out of this place, you know? And uh, I said, sure. I followed him into the kitchen. He walked into the kitchen. I'm thinking, okay, I'm I'm going to get rolled here or mugged or something's going to happen to me here. I go around a corner and it's Stephen Harper. And yeah. he's he's standing right there and he had sent his security detail to come get me. And, you know, he says, hey, congratulations on Bauer, you know? And I said, oh, thanks, you know? And, and we talked about hockey for, I don't know, it seemed like an hour, but probably was more like 20 minutes. You know, so- I, I tell that story often because it, it just goes to show you the, the power of hockey in Canada, where the Prime Minister of Canada at the time you know, knew that Bauer was sold. And of course, the angle that the media took on it was that uh, this Canadian kid from Montreal, Sherbrooke, uh, brought Bauer back to Canada from yeah. the big bad Nike down in the States, you know? <laughs> Well, it is an amazing story because, you know, Nike CEO Phil Knight saw hockey as North America's fourth most significant sport. He wanted to capitalize on the growth of inline hockey. They failed. Why did Nike fail and decide to get out of hockey? And if a company as large and successful as Nike couldn't make it work, why did you think you could make it work? Well, I want to take my hat off to Nike because they recognized why it didn't work for them. And they recognized how it could work. And they believed that the only way Bauer could grow and become the behemoth that it that it did become was that it had to be owned and led by a passionate hockey guy. And and Nike, you know, they knew what their strengths were, which is, you know, soft sports goods uh, and U.S. team sports and stuff like that. But they recognized that they didn't have uh, what I had and they wanted it to go to a hockey guy. And I was the hockey guy that they they chose. And, you know, after I did the deal, I often got calls from those same executives who were rooting me on, you know, just cheering me on and celebrating all of the successes, the acquisition of Mission iTech that I did three months after that, that was out of Montreal, uh, the acquisition of Cascade, uh, the acquisition of Maverick, all the things. But when I took it public on the TSX as the chairman, and of course, there was a whole group of executives, we all took it public, but I was the chairman. I got a call from them and they said, you know, congratulations. And they were even more thrilled when it surpassed $1 billion in valuation. Although some of them sort of were saying, well, wait a minute, we sold it for 200 million and now it's worth a billion three years later. Maybe we sold it a little early, but they, <laughs> but they did recognize, and I and hats off to them that it, the only way that Bauer was going to uh, work 
was that if it was uh, in the hands of a of a hockey guy and and I was the hockey guy. Well, that certainly makes sense. Now, Graham, as you mentioned, you took your private company that now owned the Bauer brand public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. You served as chairman of the public company for a few years until you left in 2012, running a private versus a public company. Just different beasts, or did you really prefer one model over the other? Well, they're different animals for sure. Um, in one case, uh, I, with Bauer, you know, a lot of people wanted to own some shares of Bauer. People would buy 100 shares of Bauer just so that they could say, you know, I own a piece of Bauer. Or they would buy it for their their boys and girls, you know, so that they could also celebrate it. So I was in Toronto and maybe walking on Bay Street or on Young Street or wherever I was walking. And people would stop me and say, hey, I'm a shareholder. And, and literally, we'd get into long discussions about hockey. So, you know, owning a public company is very public. And part of your job is to be the ambassador. And I gave a lot of speeches and I did a lot of dinners and I handed out a lot of equipment and I traveled the world. I, I played in Red Square and I played uh, in uh, uh, Belarus and I played in uh, Helsinki and I played hockey all over the world as the chairman of Bauer. So it's uh, a, a large part of being the chairman of the board of a public traded company is uh, being out there in the public interacting with uh, all stakeholders. And as opposed to private, you, you, it's it's a little different because you just really don't have that external desire to uh, meet with shareholders and uh, other stakeholders. It's not, it's not the same at all. The core asset of your Rooston Media Group is the Hockey News, started in 1947, and as I noted, the longest continuously published sports magazine in the world. What is the Hockey News, and why was it so appealing to you? Well, I think I could the story I have on hockey news, I think a lot of your listeners and a lot of people can sort of identify with. If you're a hockey person and you're in your thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, you grew up with the hockey news. And as I did, uh one of our neighbors was a subscriber when I was a kid and he would always drop it off so that we could read it. And my mom, who was a single mom, couldn't afford a subscription, but she did get a subscription for me one year when I, for Christmas. But it was something I read cover to cover. And my mother used to always, my mom passed away last year, but she used to always tell me all the time that when I was a young boy, all I was interested in was really in two things, going out in the streets and fighting other kids in the neighborhood uh, and the hockey news. And she said she couldn't get me to read anything. She was trying so hard to get me interested in school and, you know, but if she gave me a hockey news magazine, uh, or a newspaper back then, I would read it cover to cover multiple times, back and forth, as everybody did. It, I, I wasn't unique in that way. So I, I've been reading the, the hockey news for over a half a century when it became available to acquire from uh, P.K. Palado, and I jumped on it, and I acquired it and about over about just over five years ago, and it's been just the, I always tell people it's the be the very best acquisition I've ever made, and I've made a lot of acquisitions. Well, as you know, you were a longtime subscriber of the Hockey News, and on January 26, 2018, you announced the acquisition of the publication from P.K. Palado, or a subsidiary of Quebecor Media Inc. Why was it even available? I understand that, I guess, Quebecor's interest in the Hockey News was related to trying to acquire an NHL franchise for Quebec City. When it was apparent that wasn't going to happen, I guess they kind of lost interest. Why was this asset even available to you? 
Well, I don't really know. I, 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 I've heard a lot. I've read a lot of different uh, reports out there as to why it was sold. Uh, what I was told was that they had, as you know, they have a large portfolio of magazines. And this one didn't fit their portfolio. Uh, this didn't wasn't a good fit for them, and uh, this is why they wanted to uh, they wanted to shut it down. Actually, that's what the plan was. The plan for them was to uh, shut it down in uh, at the in June of 2018, at the end of the season. And when I got the call, it was listen, uh, this we're going to shut it down. Do you have any interest in? And because if you don't want it, we're going to shut it down. And I said, well. It's almost sacrilege to shut down the hockey news. I mean, but this was a time when a lot of magazines and a lot of newspapers were were biting the dust, right? Let's face it. I mean, it wasn't, it, and I want to be very clear about this, that this has nothing to do with Piquet Balladeau or TVA or Quebec Corps. This was just the time of 2018 when, when the industry was getting hammered uh, across the board. And so th- it was bleeding uh, badly. And so they reached out to me and uh, I said, uh, yeah, give it to me. I'll take it on. And I took it on. I would have assumed that your hockey news subscriber base was heavily skewed to Canadians, but apparently today that's not the case. Well, that's one thing I noticed when I bought it, the like 80% of subscribers were in Ontario, you know, which is great. That's fantastic. But, you know, having spent so much time in the States and becoming a dual citizen myself in 1995, the market in the U.S. is 10 times the size of Canada. And let's also face it, since uh, Gary Bettman came on board in 1993, the explosion of hockey in the United States has just like, is off the charts. And so, you know, if you go back to when I grew up where there were six teams and there was like, you know, uh, it was all a Canadian sport. Today, it's really an international sport, but the American side of the border is just tremendous. So what I've done is I've, you know, really put a lot of energy and time and money and investment in growing the subscriber base in the U.S. And today, like I'll give you an example, every month that goes by, 55, 60% of our new subscribers are coming out of the U.S. So I've turned the business around, not only financially, but also from a subscriber base that it's not 80%, you know, Ontario and 20% the rest of the world. Uh, Today, it's more of a 50% Canada, 50% USA story but the growth is in the U.S. for sure. It's amazing. What a change. Printed newspapers and magazines are dead, so we've been told. Why is the hockey news thriving? How have you extended the brand to the metaverse? Yeah, well, I, I, I keep hearing that, you know, magazines and newspapers are dead, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see it. I think there's a shift in the, in the space. I think that you know, you have to be specific. You have to be a niche business. You have to know who your customers are. And that's no different from any business. You know, you just have to, you just have to understand where your customers are and what their tastes are. And yeah, they might have a taste for more digital today. They may have their smartphones and they want to read their content there as well as the print. So just like any business, you have to be with the times. And that's what the hockey news is. It's, it's really changed uh, with the times. I'll give you one example of what we're doing right now. Is that when I when I acquired the company, it had a single website. It had a website, and that's all it had. Just they would, you know, write some stories there every once in a while. Uh, it was sort of an afterthought. It was like, okay, well, we've got a print magazine here. We should really have a website, you know, because everybody else has a website. Well, recently, uh, I announced that we were adding thirty-two new websites 
uh, to the hockey news, one for each NHL team. They're called team sites. It's THN.com slash teams. And, and we have theme sites as well. A theme site, for example, women's hockey, another theme website, which is betting. So we went from one website to by the end of the playoffs, we'll have a total of 35 websites up. So if you're a fan of, let's say you're a fan of the Winnipeg Jets, which I, I think you should be because Winnipeg <laughs> Jets great team. But, you know, you don't have to go to our website, uh, the main website, the Hockey News, and wait for a couple of weeks until you see a Winnipeg Jets story come up. You're not going to do that. The people today are what I call Amazon people, right? They expect everything like now, like today. If you don't get your product delivered to you today, something's wrong. And so we want to deliver the news, the stories of your team today. And the way we've done that is by building out 34 additional websites. And so now everybody who is a fan of any NHL team, or if you're a fan of women's hockey, or if you're a fan of betting involved in hockey, you have a place to go to 24-7, 365 that's specifically for your needs. So all we've done is take the print edition, which is the foundation of the business, and serve our customers across the board by just listening to what they're asking for. Well, another huge thing you did is your partnership with Sports Illustrated. I grew up as a subscriber and religious reader of Sports Illustrated. When you today go to the world-famous Sports Illustrated website at si.com, you will notice that their entire hockey section is powered by the hockey news. This seems like an amazing partnership, but why didn't Sports Illustrated just buy the hockey news from you? Well, they offered. They they made the <laughs> offer. They uh, I got a phone call. I did turn them down. Yes, I did. Uh, Ross Levinson, who is a good friend of mine, he's the CEO of the Arena Group, and he contacted me uh, three years ago, and he says, how much? I said, uh, for what? And he said, the hockey news. And I said, it's not for sale. And he goes, no, no, everything's for sale. What's your price? I said, it's not for sale. And he goes, what do you mean it's not for sale? And I said, listen, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I own the hockey news, and there's no reason I don't need the money. And there's no reason why I'm going to sell this. So um, uh, I'm not interested. So we worked out a deal where we would be a content supplier to Sports Illustrated. And the reason why Sports Illustrated is by far, to me, the greatest all-around sports company, publication, media company ever created. There's nothing like Sports Illustrated. The brand, it's owned by you know uh, Jamie Salter now, uh, who's a genius when it comes to marketing. But the one thing that they did recognize is that the hockey news does hockey better than anybody. Anybody. There's nobody like the hockey news. We've been around 76 years. There's nobody with the archive that we have. There's nobody with the depth of knowledge, the with the brand. I mean, the brand, the hockey news brand. You, you talk to any hockey player anywhere in the world, and they know about the hockey news. And they all dream of being in the hockey news. So Sports Illustrated and the arena group said, hey, wait a minute, you know what? We do hockey, but we don't do hockey as well as the hockey news because there's nobody that does hockey like the hockey news. So why don't we just buy them? We'll buy them. The only problem is they came across a guy like me who's not a seller. I'm a buyer. So we worked out a great deal, and you're right. If you go to si.com slash NHL, it's powered by the hockey news. Well, I think it's a fantastic partnership. Your Rooston Hockey Division owns a variety of well-known hockey brands, the core being your stick business, which has roots going back to 1847, and thus you call it hockey's oldest business at 175 years and counting. I grew up playing with $20 Sherwoods, and my dad might have really splurged on a $30 Titan for my younger brother Lawrence because, of course, he loved him more. But 
this is not the stick market of today. Graham, how'd you build your portfolio of hockey stick brands and how does it meet the varying needs today of recreational versus competitive versus the professional level player? Well, first of all, I didn't found the company myself 175 years ago. You know no. that, right? Okay, okay. It, it was founded, but not by me. This company uh, really is an amalgamation of a total of about 20 companies over the years. And this company was owned at different times by the Seagram's family, uh, by the Brofman family, uh, by Jack Cooper, uh, by the, you know, there's uh, the history of this company and who's owned it and who's had their fingerprints on it is, is really a story of Canada. This company was formed, founded in 1847, a full 20 years before Canada was a country. So this has been around for a long time. It started in a little tiny town called Air, Ontario, A-Y-R, Ontario. And the interesting thing about this little town, and I was there last weekend on Saturday, I was walking around the little town. And the thing interesting is that my grandfather is from Air, Scotland, and he was born in 1899. And this company was founded in 1847 in Air, Ontario. And the reason why, of course, it's called Air, Ontario is because of there were founders from Air, Scotland. So there's that tie to my, my grandfather. But this company, it started out making farm tools, uh, you know, all kinds of farm tools, handles and all kinds of axes and all kinds of different things. And it started making hockey sticks. And the ownership has transferred over time and it's been bought and sold by different people. And it's been an amalgamation, like I said, of several companies along the way. And so this is Canada's last and only and last hockey stick factory. Is it? There's only one left. There were hundreds or not hundreds. There were dozens, I should say, years and, you know, a hundred years ago. But this is it. This is the last one. And it is Canada's oldest. It's not only Canada's old, excuse me. It is hockey's oldest business. There is no other business as old as this business. Bauer was founded in 1927. Uh, Sherwood was founded in 1949. This company, uh, Christian, 1964. This company was 1847. So it's not just that it's ca it's hockey's oldest business, but it's one of Canada's oldest businesses. And it's really a heritage type of a business uh, for Canada. And there is no other factory in the United States. So really, it's Canada's and United States' only factory that makes hockey sticks uh, remaining. And when I walked around and I moved it, I had to move it uh, during the pandemic because it was in a factory. The factory I was in was 105 years old and literally falling apart. So I moved it from Hespler, Ontario to Brantford, Ontario during the pandemic. It took about six months to move it. But we're in a beautiful facility right now and we make, we're making them four or 500,000 hockey sticks a year. Business is very good. We make hockey sticks for most of the big brands, uh, Sherwood and Vaughn and, uh, so, you know, my own brands, Christian and Northland and Torspo, but, uh, we make also a lot of sticks for the NHL and their teams, custom sticks. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful place for me to walk around and I, you know, just love spending time there. And talk about the various stick segments. Uh, you know, there's the recreational player, competitive player, professional player, all with different needs. And of course, we've all heard the story now about uh, little Tommy going to the store, he wants his dad to buy him a $300 stick that may not even last a season. How do you manage all these different consumer needs? Yeah, you know, I, I, I it, it really bothers me to see that, you know, kids that are playing rec hockey uh, or, or are being sort of sold $300 hockey sticks. It, you know, it's it's not necessary. 
the the game of hockey is already very expensive to play and the registrations are flat and they're not growing because it's a very expensive sport to play so what i've been trying to do my very best at is to make hockey more affordable and so the sticks that come out of my factory right now you can buy them at canadian tire for 20 30 dollars and so i tell families and parents all the time look there is a market for the three and four hundred dollar stick that you know for the elite players that are trying to get to the NHL and they want this curve and they want this lightness and stuff like that. But and this is coming from the former chairman of Bauer. Okay, so I know a little bit about this. Your young boy or young girl does not need a three hundred dollar hockey stick. They really don't. You know, I always tell them that Wayne Gretzky, okay, Wayne Gretzky, the all time scorer uh, of all time, did it with a wood stick. He did it with a wood stick. And you know what? I'll tell you something. I don't care what anyone says. The talent of a hockey player comes from learning how to skate, learning how to shoot. The $300 stick versus the $100 or a $75 stick, you know what? It's not going to make it's not going to make you a Wayne Gretzky. It's just mm-hmm. not. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got the King of Bay Street, Wes Hall, Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, former CFL Commissioner, Mark Cohan, Kit Corporation's David Cinnamon, and broadcasting legends, Wendy Mesley and Gord Martineau. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. On the subject of equipment, Graham, you last year announced your acquisition of McKenney a custom manufacturer of hockey and lacrosse equipment that had been based in Scarborough since 1996. So you now offer hockey equipment and hockey sticks, the whole package. Talk about your stated goal that you would like to repatriate manufacturing back to Canada. Well, that's my goal here. The idea is to bring hockey manufacturing back to Canada, made in Canada. You know, that's really important, not only for the sport, but it's important for the heritage of Canada, that something is made in Canada. And we make, like you said, in Scarborough, we have a factory now that makes goalie equipment and lacrosse equipment. That's at McKenneyHockey.com. So if you're a young goalie or a professional goalie, you can get your equipment designed exactly the way you want it. And it's pro equipment. It's not real retail stuff that comes out of China. This is pro gear. And it's custom, so you can get what you want. And it's made in Canada by Canadians. There's a lot behind that. There's There's a desire on my part to make Made in Canada important again. And so by making hockey sticks and making hockey equipment in Canada uh, and making it more affordable and dealing directly with consumers, you can buy a full set of goalie equipment directly from us, the manufacturer. You don't, you can go straight to us. And if you want hockey sticks, you can come straight to us Mm. and we'll make it for you. We'll customize it for you. It's Made in Canada. And that's my goal here is to try to bring some of the made in Canada back to Canada and um, make it affordable. And and that's what I'm trying to do. The obvious question, Graham, is going to be, how can you possibly compete on labor costs? You can't. You can't when it comes to pro stuff. Well, you, know, you can't start when it comes to retail stuff. For example, if you want a very low end and pay a couple hundred dollars for a pair of retail goalie pads... The, the only place you can get those from is out of China. But if you're like a 
if you're like an American Hockey League goalie or an East Coast Hockey League goalie or a university goalie, and you want a pro set, a pro set that would at Bauer or CCM cost you two twenty five hundred dollars, you know we can make that using Canadian labor, uh, and we can get it to you for I don't know what it's seventeen or eighteen hundred dollars. It's cheaper because we don't have the shipping involved. We and we have the immediacy of uh, of the product available. So in certain categories, you're right, you can't compete with China, but in certain other categories, you can. And Having a gore, going back to the chairman of Bauer role I had, I, I know what we can make here and I know what we can't make here. I think you also have a very different business model. Uh, that what's different between you and your competitors is the economic synergies that come with owning not only major stick and equipment brands, but also this very powerful media asset, the hockey news. How do you make it take advantage of those synergies, Graham? That is the key thing here is that not only do I make the sticks in Brantford, Ontario, but I brand the sticks with my Christian or Northland or Torspo brands, and then I sell it direct to consumers on our websites, and I market it in the hockey news. So there's no other margin there. There's no other middleman. There's no middleman. You know, there's no middleman. I'm not selling it to a retail store who then sells it to, uh, you know, I'm selling it direct to consumer, and so I can can afford keep the other people uh, out of the supply, out of the chain, and get it to the end user much cheaper. So it's a vertical type of integration where you make the product, you brand the product, you sell the product, and you market the product. Makes sense to me. I want to talk about BetMGM. They were named your exclusive sports betting partner of the Hockey News. Now, this was before the introduction of fully legalized sports and casino gaming in Ontario, which happened last April. How do you work together today, and how has the partnership changed in the last year with the gambling regulatory environment opening up so significantly? I I sort of want to go back to your question about Sports Illustrated. Uh, It's the same kind of a story. Sports Illustrated and the Arena Group recognize the strength of the Hockey News brand, and they they approached me. They came to me and they said, how much? And I I turned down that uh, to sell it to them, as we talked about before. BetMGM wanted to get into the gaming business in Canada, and they were they knew a year or two in advance that they were going to be applying for uh, their license in Ontario, Canada, the province of Ontario. So what they did, and they're very smart people. My goodness, they're the smartest marketing people out there. They said, okay, we're going to enter Canada. How do we want to enter Canada? Recognizing that hockey is core to the heritage of Canada and the culture of Canada, they said to themselves, okay, well, we're going to go through, we're going to partner with hockey. So what is the way to do that? Who should we partner with who's going to get us that instant credibility, instant brand recognition? Who's the top player in the hockey media business in Canada? And of course, it's the hockey news. So BetMGM called me and they said, we want to partner with you. And I said, fine. So they bought every single back cover of every issue for multiple year, multi-million dollar deal. And they just are an amazing partner. And of course, as you know, they went out and signed Wayne Gretzky and Connor McDavid uh, to uh, as spokesmen, ambassadors. So their approach was, hey, if we're going to, you know, BetMGM is by far, in my opinion, the best brand out there when it comes to gaming. And they want to partner with equally the top brands in the hockey business. So they partnered with the NHL. They partnered with the Hockey News. They partnered with Wayne Gretzky. 
and Connor McDavid. And so that was like two years ago. And it's been an excellent relationship. We are like working together uh, hand in hand, always looking at how we can improve the partnership. And uh, it's just been a, a tremendous boom for the hockey news. Uh, of course, not only financially, but also it's really gotten our brand out there further. So now when I look at it, I go, okay, well, we got a Sports Illustrated partnership. We've got a BetMGM partnership. I mean, I just don't know of any other brands out there that are better than Sports Illustrated and BetMGM. Well, Graham, it's a great case study. As you've noted, it's all about branding. I think we all agree that the GTA should have a second professional hockey team. Will it happen in our lifetimes? Well, I'm I'm biased, <laughs> so I think it should. I think there's three teams in in the New York metropolitan area, although, uh, and of course, as you know, there's two in the Los Angeles area. And uh, back in 2012, I was working to bring a second NHL team to Toronto, to Markham, Ontario. It got close. Uh, we lost a vote for a piece of land up there and a deal with the city. Uh, by uh, uh, by uh, uh, it was Jack Heath, I think, was the deputy city manager who voted it down, and uh, 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 another regional ma- uh, regional uh, uh, councillor voted it down, and we lost by a couple of votes. But uh, had it not been there, t- uh, those two votes, uh, we would have an arena in Markham today, and who knows, maybe we would add a second NHL team. But I really do believe that the Toronto, the GTA market could easily absorb a second NHL team. And uh, uh, it, I, I do believe it will happen in our lifetimes. All right. I certainly hope so. And being in Richmond Hill myself, Graham, I would have loved to have been able to go to Markham to see a NHL hockey game. Interesting fun fact that attests to the quality of the hockey news. What is the number one reason for subscription cancellations? <laughs> well, it depends on which week you, you're looking at it, but I'm always surprised that some reports that come into me from time to, uh, we get these monthly reports and, and, and sometimes I've seen it where we lost the most subscribers in a particular week or month because of the death of some scri- subscribers. And I, I think, wow. And, and I, oh my goodness, I get so many letters from subscriber families who say, you know, I'm calling because I'd like to change the subscription from my dad to my my son because my dad passed away at the age of 83 and he was a subscriber for 62 years and I want to keep the subscription going, but can you put it in my son's name? You know, I get these letters and it it's really personal for a lot of our subscribers. You know, there's stories behind it. My dad, my grandfather, this, this has been coming to our family for this long, uh, and they don't want to cancel the subscription. Andrew, when I get these calls and I get these emails, and I, I do interact with subscribers all the time, every day almost, I understand the, the importance of the, the brand. And I understand that this is not, I'm the steward of the hockey news. You know, I, yeah, I own it. Okay. I own 100% of it. It's all mine. Yeah, that's great. But right now, I'm the steward of it. You know, the guy who started Ken McKenzie, he started it. I'm just like the fourth or fifth owner along the way. But this brand and these magazines and this subscription belongs to our subscribers. And the importance that it plays in their family, everybody has a story. I'm constantly reminded of how important this magazine plays in people's lives. And and it's a it's a big responsibility, and I take it very seriously. It's great to get that kind of feedback from the subscribers. Graham, I want to close with something a little lighter. At one time, 
you were living in Los Angeles with two roommates. One was current super agent Pat Brisson, and the second was perhaps the greatest left winger of all time, the best 171st draft pick ever, lucky Luke Robitaille. Uh, I have to hear this story. Well, let me tell you, Pat Brisson and Luke are my brothers. They're brothers from a different mother. And uh, Pat and myself and Luke, well, Luke was, I think, in his second year at the, uh, at the Kings, just a, like a rookie or a sophomore guy. He, Lukey Lucky, uh, as he's, his nickname is Lucky, and of course, Papillon is uh, Canard, and they called me Cookie. So it was Canard, Cookie, and, and uh, Lucky. Uh, the three of us uh, spend a lot of time together. Uh, it was Luke's house. Uh, Luke is the most generous guy anyone will ever meet. He literally gave me the shirt off his back on multiple occasions because I didn't have the style he had. He, <laughs> he was very stylish. He's a styling guy. But he opened up his doors. He says, hey, no, stay, st- live here, stay here. And so Pat and myself and Luke um, spent um, a long, many years together uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, we have a lot of, I have a lot of stories that I cannot um, <laughs> repeat, but uh, whenever I'm with uh, Pat and Luke, and uh, it's not often enough, but we're always on the phone talking. But yeah, they're my brothers. Uh, I love them dearly. But it's funny because when we first were hanging out, Pat Brisson was, um, you know, doing little deals here and there, and he was, uh, you know, uh, just starting out. And he and uh, Pat, uh, he and Luke were uh, line mates uh, in uh, for the Hall Olympics. Uh, they played junior together. So Pat was sort of doing this and doing that, nothing serious, jobs. And of course, Luke was second year. I was at uh, Dabney Resnick, an uh, uh, investment banking firm in uh, Beverly Hills, California. And uh, and then, so we, we a few years, uh, in 2000, I think it was 10 or 9, nine 2009, years later, we're all at the, no, uh, oh, no, no, it was, uh, it was later than that. But anyways, we were all together at the Staples Center. Uh, Luke Robitai was the president of the Los Angeles Kings. Pat Brisson is the president of CAA Sports Hockey, and uh, I'm the chairman of Bauer, and we had a good laugh. You know, it's like, what was in the water? You know, how yeah. <laughs> how did this happen? Lucky, uh, I, I think he's by far the greatest left winger of all time. That's my own opinion. Papadisson is the greatest agent of all time, and so I'm the weak link in the chain. <laughs> well, it was quite a threesome to, uh, as you say, to come together today and see what you've all become and gotten up to. Something else interesting about you, Graham, that you mentioned was you have a pilot's license. Is this an, an active pursuit of yours? Well, as a kid, you know, I, I lived near the Dorval Airport in uh, Dollar Desert Mall for when I was growing up before an NDG. And I used to go at the end of the runway and just sit there and watch planes, you know, landing all the time. Like most kids, we'd ride down on our bikes. And so, you know, fl- you know, flying an airplane was way outside of my uh, our, our financial capability being a pilot. But as soon as I did well, I got my pilot's license and bought myself a plane and, um, I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to fly a P-51 Mustang, which is a World War II bird. You know, I, I enjoy flying, and it's uh, it's one of those things that um, when you're when you're up there and you're flying, uh, you're so focused on flying that all the troubles, all the other stuff going on, all the nonsense, all the noise out there in the world sort of disappears, and uh, you have these moments up there where. You're by yourself and you're looking out at the horizon and you're seeing, you know, God's creation just right in front of you. And you realize um, what's really important in life, and that is uh, your family and the world that we all live in, we have to take care of. So it's just uh, it's a beautiful place to be uh, up in the air by yourself. 
Well, when I got to clear my head, I have to jump on the elliptical machine, but uh, you jump in your airplane. So I am jealous about that, but it's, we all have to find our way. Graham, as we close up, to the extent that you can reveal, what is next for the Roostin Empire? Well, you know, I, I, I have the, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world for sure. There's no question about that. And uh, it seems like every day there's new opportunities. I'm constantly getting phone calls about being involved in this project or that project. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, my uh, uh, serving on boards and and uh, donating my time. I I just love giving away hockey sticks. I gave a thousand hockey sticks to Hockey Quality of Scarborough and, and a hockey some McKinney goalie equipment. So I, I'm really enjoying my life. I'm able to give back now. I've earned so much. I've I've been given so much that right now I'm really focused on giving back and enjoying my life and. Um, I, again, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. That's fabulous. Gratitude. That's what it's about. Where can we best follow you, your various brands, and of course, the hockey news? Well, I have a website, rooston.com, that really is the centerpiece of all my uh, acquisitions and um, businesses. But I really encourage people to go to thehockeynews.com and subscribe and support the journalists. I have a uh, 100 plus, plus or minus 100 journalists that I support uh, through the hockey news and uh, subscribers support. And if you really want to, and I tell this all the time to people, if you really want to know and be the smartest guy in the room when it comes to hockey, you got to be a subscriber to the hockey news because of the content. I mean, the, the what we produce out there is just, is just an amazing thing for $34 and 95 cents a, a year. You're just going to get a lot of knowledge. So if you want to, if you want to follow me, it's roosten.com, but I, I, I think I would prefer you to follow the hockey news at thehockeynews.com. <laughs> hey, who doesn't want to be the smartest guy in the room? Graham, it's been fabulous meeting you, getting to know you, hearing your stories, and I uh, want to wish you continued success going forward. Thanks, Andrew, for inviting me. It was uh, my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Graham Rooston, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. 
Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.